Well, amen. Indeed, there is no other name that is worthy, and we hope that you know that today. I invite you this morning to open up your Bible to Mark chapter 12, and we'll be reading in verses 35 through 37 of the Gospel of Mark this morning as we find our places. Thank you, Justin. In Mark chapter 12, I want to mention a few things. First, if you're visiting with us today, let me say to you that we are incredibly grateful to have you with us as our guest, or if you are watching on Online for the first time, thank you for joining us. We would love to know who you are. I encourage you to text the word connect to the number that you will see on the screen, and one of our connect team members will follow up with you this week. If you're with us on campus, we'd love for you to stop by one of our welcome areas on your way off campus this morning, and our team there would be happy to learn, help you learn how you can get involved in the life of our church. Secondly, and speaking of getting involved in the life of our church, this past week, we had 21 people complete our membership process to become new members of our church family. Some of you are in here this morning, and so as I read your name, if you'd stand and remain standing till I get done uh, reading the list of names. Those coming to join our church family are Bryson and Melissa Bird, Dan Friedsberg, Heath, Laura, Megan, Jonathan, and Audrey Gardner. Corey and Emily Lewis, Eber and Tanya Nascimento, Seth and Jennifer Olson, Josh and Brittany Regans, Rihanna Smith, Ben and Barbara Wilkie, and Neil and Cassandra Woods. Church family, if you rejoice at these coming to be a part of our church, if you let them know that. Thank you so much, and a couple of those will be getting baptized in the coming weeks, and we praise God for that. The last thing I wanna mention before we read from Mark chapter 12 is that next Sunday is Student Sunday, and so our students are gonna be leading us in worship as we celebrate what God is doing uh, through our student ministry. We recognize those who are graduating this year, and uh, our student minister, Alec, will be preaching, and so I hope you will join me in being here next week at 9.30 or 11 for that special time of worship. All right, Let's read from Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 37. It says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, if you're reading through Mark chapter 12, and if you're really reading through the gospel of Mark, then I would say that you probably won't walk away from Mark chapter 12 taking special note of the three verses that we just read. Because in Mark chapter 12, we have what we're about to read of the, the scribes and the widow's might, and you have the great commandment, which we talked about last week, of loving God and loving your neighbor. You have the Sadducees asking the question about the resurrection and who will be married to in the resurrection. You have God, Jesus telling us to give to Caesar what is Caesar and God to what is God's, and you, you have the parable of the tenants. And so it's very likely that of anything you remember, this might be the last thing that you would remember. Remember. But what I would believe and I would suggest to you is that Mark chapter 12 really revolves around these three verses. And in fact, all of the gospel of Mark points to these three verses. And I hope that you will see today that what these three verses say is really pointing you to the question of where is your identity 
And what is the purpose of your life? Jesus is teaching in the temple, the text tells us. And in the temple, he has been questioned for some time by many groups. And those questions have now stopped. As the questions stop, the teacher now has a question for the students. Matthew tells us in his gospel that preceding what Jesus says here, he asks a question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 42 says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. The teaching of the scribes is accurately that the Christ will be a descendant of David. The term Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. But we need to understand that they were expecting someone to restore Israel to the place they were whenever David reigned. They were expecting that their superiority as God's people would once, be, once again be shown to the nations that surrounded them. And there was specific angst in this time about the Romans, about the Roman Empire, which is arguably still to this day, maybe the most influential and far-reaching empire that has ever existed. And so they're thinking about this Messiah in this light. And Jesus asked them, how can you say that the Messiah is the son of David in light of what David says in Psalm 110? That's where Jesus says, David himself, verse 36, in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him the Messiah, Lord. So how is he the Messiah, his son? The great throng heard him gladly. This is a reference to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And we'll reference most of those uh, references in um, help for us to understand. But before we look elsewhere, let us understand Psalm 110 better to understand what Jesus is saying. Verse 36 of Mark chapter 12 is a quote of Psalm 110 verse 1. Psalm 110 verse 1 reads, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the Greek reading of Mark chapter 12 verse 36, the, what we read is the Koryos said to my Koryos. So the Lord, Koryos, Greek word for Lord, said to my Lord, Koryos, Greek word for Lord. But reading that, without understanding what Jesus is referencing in Psalm 110 doesn't fully capture what Jesus is saying. Psalm 110, written in Hebrew, reads, Jehovah said to my Adonai. That is what Jesus would have said as he read Psalm 110. So proper name for God says to my Adonai, to my Lord, generic word for Lord. Now, in the Hebrew, it would actually be written, Yahweh has said to my Lord, but Jesus would not read it, so they pronounce Yahweh, since they would not speak that word, Jehovah. So David, in Psalm 110, refers to God, Yahweh, Jehovah, and he refers to himself as my Lord, which was a common way that kings would refer to themselves. They would speak about themselves in the third person. My Lord, the king, requests that you get him a cup of water or something like that. Before you think that's too weird, 
People do that today. Trump, Donald Trump. Trump asks you. Trump thinks this. And before you think that's too weird, we as parents often says, hey, daddy wants you to go and get this. And that's super weird. But I do it, so I'm super weird. So David says, Jehovah says to me, Lord. David says that Yahweh, Jehovah God, instructs him to sit at his right hand while he does, Yahweh, does what he needs to do to establish his kingdom. And this either had immediate fulfillment in what God was going to do through David or for David, or it has immediate fulfillment and, at the time of David, future fulfillment. Now, the scribes believed that Psalm 110, while it had immediate fulfillment for David, was also about the coming Messiah. And I think they are right. And more importantly, Jesus thinks they are right. If you read the rest of the Psalm, you understand what David is talking about, what God is speaking through David. Psalm 110, verse 2 through 7, or at least some of the rest of the Psalm. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with the corpses. He will scatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so while this psalm, I believe, was talking about what God was going to do in the life of David, we also see that this psalm is talking about something bigger than just the life of David. It's talking about God's supreme final rule, ultimate rule. It's talking about access to God and worship of God as king, and it's talking about one who would be our ultimate high priest. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5 through 10, and in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer refers explicitly to Jesus Christ as a Melchizedek, whose priesthood in the book of Genesis did not come through the law that gave instructions to have priests, but rather whose priesthood was instituted by God himself. So this psalm, Psalm 110, is referring to the Christ. And the reason Jesus references it here is because the scribes teach that the Messiah is the son of David. But David refers to the Messiah as his Lord. Now, sons may address in their day their fathers as lords, but fathers do not address their sons as Lord. The reason Jesus is saying this is he wants them to see their short-sightedness as they think about the Messiah. He wants them to see that they're not really looking for the right thing. You see, they were looking for a king just like David. When they thought of the Messiah, they thought of it in the confines of the great king, David, and the kingdom that he had. And they had clear expectations, and therefore they taught in accordance with that understanding and their expectations of what this Messiah would do. But there's contradiction in their understanding that's very clear when you look at it. And I like how they responded. Matthew says, verse, chapter 22, verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more 
questions. So why is Jesus saying this? He's saying this because he is the Christ. The reason for Jesus' question here is that he is the Christ. Just a moment ago, last week, we read the scribe questions Jesus about the greatest commandments. And the scribe answers rightly about what the great commandments are. And Jesus tells the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're staring at it. The king is right in front of you. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus and his disciples, the disciples would follow Jesus. They would see Jesus, and they would see the crowd's reaction to Jesus. And at a time, or at different times in the life of Jesus, the crowd would go away. And they had different reasons for going away, and they had different beliefs about Jesus. And the disciples are telling Jesus, this is who people say you are. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The understanding of Jesus as the Christ is affirmed by Jesus. Jesus himself claims to be the one who the Old Testament told us was coming. So Jesus is the Christ, and we know this because Jesus tells him, tells others that he is indeed the Christ. But that's not the only reason we know that Jesus is the Christ. You see, the, the, the reason that Jesus is referencing this is correctly so, the people of Israel believed that the Son of God, the Messiah, would come from the line of David. Jesus comes from the line of David. We have a little diagram to show you that both Matthew and Luke in their genealogies point us to the fact that Jesus descended from David. One showing us how Jesus descended from David in Mary's line and one of us showing that Jesus descended from David in Joseph's line. Those genealogies are not identical because the points of those genealogies are not identical. Both of them show us that Jesus indeed is a descendant of David. In addition to the fact that Jesus affirmed that he was the Christ, in addition to the fact that his lineage is from David, which was part of being the Christ, he fulfilled many scriptures in his life. Many scriptures from the Old Testament prophesied hundreds if not thousands of years before Jesus were fulfilled in Christ. And when Peter is preaching the gospel in Jerusalem after Jesus is ascended to heaven, this is what he says. Here's why you should believe to the people of Jerusalem in Jesus. Acts 1.16. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This is just one reference to the fact that the reason Jesus' life on earth played out the way that it did was according to the plan of God written hundreds, if not thousands of years beforehand. He is the one who David talked about. 
And Jesus is referred to as the son of David by the blind man who Jesus heals. And he's referred to as the son of David by many of those in Jerusalem. The triumphal entry shows us this. And the scribes are actually arguing, the religious crowd are arguing, saying he is not who David said would come. And they wanted to disprove that and they would have Jesus crucified because they disagreed. They rejected that Jesus was the son of David. But yet, they had this understanding of the son of David, and they were missing who he was. I want you to notice that their understanding, their terminology, that is, wasn't wrong. But their understanding of the terminology was wrong. Most of us who are gathered today are somewhat religious folks. Now, you might, I'm not about religion, I'm about a relationship. Okay, but you're pretty religious. You gather together uh, weekly, if not, you know, at least close to it. You have routines of being in the word. You have, you have disciplines in your life. And so you're, you're what I would consider somewhat of a religious person. And your motivation, hopefully, is because of Christ, but you are. But we need to take heed that you can be completely devoted to the practice of your faith and even articulate the right things and say the right things and miss the right reason and miss the right purpose. And it becomes a cloud over your understanding of God's word. You see, they saw the Messiah in nationalistic terms. They saw the Messiah in political terms. But Jesus did not come as a national hero. Jesus did not come as a political icon. He came as the savior we need. And they rejected the idea of a heavenly savior who wasn't for their earthly agendas. They rejected the idea of a heavenly savior who wasn't for their earthly agendas. We need to be aware that who we want Jesus to be and what we want God to do for us will cloud and does cloud our understanding of who God really is and what God really wants for us. Last week, I talked, or a couple weeks ago, I talked about this idea of a filter and a filter we put up and that filter, that AC filter, stops what we don't want to hear from getting to our hearts and mind when it comes to reading God's word. And we must be aware that we have to constantly get rid of those filters of what we want and what we desire to listen clearly to what God has to say to us. And I'm simplifying this, but this is how we get warped views of God. This is how we get warped views of religion and faith because we put up these filters and if God doesn't pass the test of our filter, then we're not going to give him the glory and the worthiness that he is truly due. And what it does is it leads us away from him having the authority that he should have in our lives. And so we need to be aware of something. And for us who grew up, most of us, in a democratic republic, this is foreign to us. But we need a king. You and I need a king. We were created for a king. The world cannot escape this idea. 
Think about King Arthur, and I don't know if you know, but on King Arthur's tombstone, it's said to say, here lies Arthur, the once and future king. The idea that in the spirit of King Arthur, there would once again be a Camelot. Until we have Camelot once again, we have not embraced our true identity. The story of Robin Hood. Robin Hood deals with this idea that under Prince John's rule, things are not good for the people, but King Richard will come back. And when King Richard comes back and rightly rules, he will correct all of the evil that Sir Hiss has created. Sorry, that's my favorite Robin Hood movie. That's the animated wooden, by the way, if you don't know it. And if you don't know it, then your parents have deprived you, and that's all I'll say. In The Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien sums up really the point of the Lord of the Rings and the message of the Lord of the Rings with this one statement. There is a true king that is hidden in the north, and when he returns, all will be made right. I mean, the, the, the movie, The Wizard of Oz, deals with this false idea that this wizard, this great ruler, he'll make all things right, and it's all a facade. And so we see, I mean, even today still, our, our constant draw to this idea of there being a true and good king who rules in his power rightly for people. Why all of these legends when we know that human kings are terrible? Attila the Hun, who had great power, many others, more modern, Hitler, Stalin, and their desire to have total power, even more modern totalitarian governments like the Kim family, not the Kardashians, but the ones in North Korea. And before you say it's men, it's the patriarchs, Marie Antoinette, Queen Mary, you see that the reality is we are not fit to rule. And yet we're constantly trying to rule. And we're constantly looking for somebody's rule. And I would say to you that if we do not embrace the king we were created to accept, then we will create or embrace a king based on our need for acceptance. If we do not embrace the king that we were created to accept, we will create or embrace a king based on our need for acceptance. People will gladly take the place of king. We see that because there are kings. But also some politicians, they may not call themselves king because you would never get elected in our country, but they believe they are the hope of our nation. Famous people believe with their power and their wealth and their influence, if you just follow them and you hinge on their every word and you listen to everything they say and how they view the world, then you will find your value and your worth too. Religious leaders begin to believe that if, if you hear them and you follow their teaching and you're a part of their church and you read their books, then, then you will have what you need in this world. And you may be thinking, I don't believe in those kind of leaders, but I'll tell you, I see time and time again where people who are looking for their significance, a spouse comes into their life and becomes gladly the king of their life. Or children with parents who are insecure and feel like they need to prove themselves will begin to revolve everything in their life around their children and children will gladly take the position of king. But human beings are sinful. None of us are fit to be in that position where somebody gives their allegiance 
and their whole devotion too. This is just a quick side note. That's why any church, any government organization, and any business must have mechanisms of accountability placed in it. And if you are a part of a church or a part of an organization that doesn't have that, then I would just suggest you run if there's not a willingness to make that correction. But what we see is we see brokenness and we see this if we look over history and even modern history and even in the name of faith, we see brokenness of corruption of power over and over and over again. Because we were not created for our allegiance to be to any one person, but to King Jesus. Now, if I am suggesting that we want a king and that Jesus is that king, then why are we not just all accepting that? Like, why do you have friends who you could tell they, they're searching for something and searching for rule and reign in their life, but they won't give their life to Jesus? Or why do we? Even though we claim Jesus to be king, why do we have such a hard time submitting areas of our life to him? Well, there's a part of us that hates the king. A passage that has come up a lot in the section of Mark, because really, I think Jesus has this whole idea in mind here, is this, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 1 and 3 says, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, it's not just that people don't believe in this stuff. It's that they reject it. George MacDonald, who actually inspired C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, says, I am my own is the one conviction shared by people in hell, and it is the one conviction that creates hell. Meaning, that's what sends us to hell. We don't belong to God. We're gonna live our life, but it's also what creates the brokenness we see when we don't look to God. So why do we reject God? This, this passage tells us because he puts bonds on us. You know the reason people, you and me, don't want to be held accountable to living our life for God because it infringes upon our freedom to do what we want, what we desire. You know, I've noticed that very few people reject the idea of God. Few rejected the idea of God. Many reject the God of the Bible. So a lot of people are okay with this idea of a God as long as he doesn't have any specific request of them or of us, should I say. One of our church members is involved in an email thread with a friend of theirs who is not a believer, and they forwarded this email thread to me just for advice and prayer. And this person that is not a believer is clearly studied. Now, I don't know if that's true study or they just Google, you know, Reasons that we don't have to believe in the Bible, reasons that whatever, because you could do that, and then you can Google another article. I mean, it's all, all over there, and whether it actually has any credible source material is irrelevant, right? As long as today we find something that agrees with what I want, I'm good. And so um, that's not good, by the way, for you younger people, but that's how a lot of people live. And so, you know, there's, there's this back and forth about historical evidence and all that, and that's fine. 
And then I start to notice as the conversation goes on, the tone, things that she thinks really start to come out and she eventually says this. She says, well, I just can't accept a God who wants me to change, who says he loves me, but he only loves me if I'm willing to change. And this is a popular thought. Maybe it's always been a popular thought, but this is a popular thought today. If God is loving, then he doesn't want me to change. And if he, doesn't, if he wants me to change, then he is not loving. But do you realize what you're doing when you say that? What you're saying is, I will not accept a God who wants me to change. But I will not accept a holy God. He must change for me to accept him. We are saying, holy God, who spoke what we see into existence, who is the only source of life, who without him there is nothing. I'm okay with that. But the minute that holy God, who nothing exists without, who will be for all of eternity, who breathes life into me, the moment that holy God wants me to change, he better change. Do you see who is God in this situation? And many of us may not say that so explicitly, but we function like that. And in this moment, we are asking God to serve us and God to change for us. And not only is that an affront to his holiness, but that makes absolutely no sense. We are the ones who need to change because we are not omnipotent. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipresent. He is. And what the Bible is telling us is not only does he have all that kind of power, but he is for us and his desire for us to change is for our good. But yet we want our freedom. And so I would ask you, do you see your hate of the bonds that God puts on you? This is why so many people don't like the rules because it says you can't do what you want. Actually, it doesn't even, it says you shouldn't do what you want. It says there's consequences for doing for what you want. This is why a lot of people don't want to be committed to a church. They can say whatever about, the Bible supports being part of the church. You just don't want to have to go on Sunday morning or give your money or serve other people. You're not concerned with what God wants and other people want. This is why we have such a hard time when we go through trials. How does the world not revolve around me and what makes me happy all the time? And so we reject a God that doesn't serve us. And we convince ourselves that we can escape that God. And so our culture begins to validate we can escape that God. And our churches even begin to organize around escaping the doctrine that God's word teaches us, and maybe we even become antagonistic about those things, but continuing on in Psalm 2, it says this, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This text, it's poetic, and it says, from a heavenly perspective, it's laughable that kings would think that they can establish earthly kingdoms apart from God's reign and that we would think we can exalt ourselves apart from God's reign. God will establish his kingdom. I forget where I heard this. It was an African proverb or not a proverb, so I don't know what it is, but somebody said this. Um, The dogs can bark all night, but the lion is still king. All it takes is one roar to remember that. So how do we start to see that all this is good? We realize he's the king. And sometimes that's why he's roaring in our lives. It's so that we would be reminded of that. And when we realize he's the king, we're honest about ourselves and where that leads us. And if we're honest, I think we realize that we long for a rescuer. We long for someone to rescue us from the brokenness of this world. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the author said this, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You see, in our culture, this idea of a rescuer, just as this idea of a king is one we can't escape in multiple societies throughout history, this idea of a rescuer is one that we constantly see in arts and literature and wherever it may be because we can't escape this idea of one who's come to rescue. And what Hebrews is saying is saying the angels exist for this purpose of rescue. That that's really what everything is about and that's what Jesus is saying here is that David saw that. And whenever Peter preaches to those in Jerusalem who see the the church filled with the Holy Spirit and they're like, what's going on there? Peter shows them this and I'll, I'll start in Acts chapter two, verse 29. He says this, brothers, I may say to you, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter says, when David was king, he spoke under the inspiration of God as a prophet, knowing he wouldn't just die, he would be resurrected. He understood there would be a resurrection, not as clearly as we see it now, because now we have seen the resurrection, because Christ is risen from the grave. Then he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. He says, this isn't just about the people of God wanting to reign again because of all those bad people out there. This is about you needing to be rescued, not from the brokenness of the world, from the brokenness of your heart because you rejected Jesus because he wasn't what you wanted him to be. But now look, the scriptures have pointed to the fact that this is the king and we've seen him rise from the grave. And notice what happens. It says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, you probably don't care about how my sermon prep goes, but um, for the two of you that do, about a month or two out, I'm working on like this Sunday's sermon, and in it, I'll, I'll do study, and I'll, I'll write in three different colors of ink, well, actually four, Black is like, this is factual, I'm just gonna say this. Green is like, hey, I'm gonna say this, but I need to talk about it more. Um, red is if I think I'm funny. And um, <laughs> blue, there's not much red, just so you know. And blue, well, there's much red, but it doesn't land the way I think it would. And blue means like, hey, you gotta figure out how to say this before you get up there in front of people. And as I got, I was looking over my sermon yesterday morning, and even this morning, at the end, it says like, convince people of this, and I was thinking about it. I could come up with some clever story or some heartwarming way of connecting this. But Paul said, don't come in impressiveness of speech, but in the power of the gospel. And all I really didn't know to say is that we need a king and that Jesus is the king. And if we don't embrace the king we are created for, we will create one for ourselves. And we will live for a kingdom that's going to pass away. And we are doing that. And the king has come to rescue us. You see, it's not that the king comes and defeats all our enemies and yea, we win. It's that the king comes and we realize we're the enemy. We're fighting for the wrong kingdom. We're living for the wrong kingdom. And in his grace, he invites us to his kingdom. And we don't make it better. Somebody was telling me up there, uh, Stephen's a Pittsburgh fan, and D Dave Chastain has a friend who played for the Steelers for four years, has four rings, never played a dime, those four, a, a, an ounce, a minute, those four years, but he has the rings. That's what being a Christian is like. Jesus wins it for us, even though we were enemies. And so today, I just hope, it, hope as Peter proclaimed that you would see that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the known and one. This isn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by our Father who's in heaven. Let me pray for us. Jesus, may your spirit work in our hearts, our callous hearts, to see the truth of who you are, 
to see that we live for things we weren't created to live for, that we exalt ourselves and others to positions that they were never intended to be in, and that you are the one true king and that you have come to rescue us from ourselves. And as a Christian, may that be our daily life, submission to the one true and good King Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.